0: Of course, in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, you will, I hope, remember that in verses 9 through 12 of Colossians chapter 1, we find the petitionary prayer of Paul and Timothy in behalf of the Colossians, a prayer which was grounded in the hope of the heavenly inheritance to which the Colossians were entitled, as evidenced by their faith and their love. A prayer, a petitionary prayer, which began the very day that manifest undeniable evidence of that faith and love that they possessed was delivered to Paul and Timothy by uh, the faithful minister among them, Epaphras a petitionary prayer that was repeated regularly right up to the time of the writing of this letter and no doubt beyond. And in this prayer, I hope you will recall, we found one main petition, one principal thing for which Paul and Timothy were praying, which was that the Colossians might be filled with an exhaustive knowledge of the divine will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. The knowledge sought was knowledge of God's revealed will, that which God has delivered to us in His Word regarding what we ought to believe and how we ought to live. The nature of this knowledge was that it might be thorough. That it might be an exhaustive knowledge, as well as being an intimate and an inward knowledge. In its extent, complete, but not just external knowledge, not just theoretical knowledge, not just something that they could parrot back when asked, but an inward, an intimate knowledge personally received with sincerity of heart, and this Knowledge was to be held in what was called all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that is, with a Holy Spirit-endowed comprehension and perception of the significance of the truth which was so exhaustively known, with an ability to draw out those truths into practical application and instruction in the way of righteousness. And finally, the source of this knowledge was God himself, because they were to receive it. It was uh, to be by God's filling them with it that they would obtain this knowledge. And so we must remember that in this place anyway, this is not principally an exhortation to the Colossians that they should have an exhaustive knowledge of the divine will, but a prayer to God For he alone is the author and giver of all of those spiritual graces, and especially the sole author and giver of the wise and spiritual and exhaustive knowledge of his will. Now, we are not left with uh, merely the bare assertion that this is a desirable thing. Uh, that we would infer from the fact that Paul and Timothy were praying for it. Instead, we are also given the purpose to which this exhaustive knowledge was to be directed. It was not given so that they might glory in their possession of it, as if they had done or found it out by their own uh, wise accomplishment. It was not given that they might spend their time in theological speculations, uh, or that they might argue with one another over forms of words, it was given for one reason, which is in verse 10, uh, to walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. So the apostle prays, on account of this, we also, from which day we heard it, cease not praying for you and asking, "...that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, uh, to walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing." This, then, is the purpose behind the knowledge prayed for. Or, perhaps we can consider it as the result that such a knowledge, such a condition, would secure, that they might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing." Now, first of all, the knowledge prayed for was to effect the lives of the Colossians. Here it is called their walk. This is the usual word for actual physical walking in the Scripture. As, for example, when Jesus says to various people, Rise up and walk. Take up your pallet and walk. This is the word. But beginning in the Gospel of John... We we begin to find it there, and especially, almost exclusively, uh, in the epistles, the word is used to refer to one's way of life, the way that one lives. Because life is not presented in the Scriptures as a passive thing that we experience. It is presented in the Scriptures as a journey, if you will. Men are always presented as walking in some pathway. Some walk in darkness. Others walk in light. Some walk after the flesh. Others walk in the spirit. Some walk by faith. Others walk by sight. Some walk with honesty, with charity. Some walk circumspectly. Some walk in wisdom, some walk in truth. Others walk as the other Gentiles. Others walk disorderly. They walk in many various sins. These the scriptural images of life and the way that men live. Walking is living, it is acting, it is following the path of righteousness or unrighteousness. So this knowledge was to affect how they lived. The knowledge prayed for would affect their lives also in a very particular way. The knowledge would cause them to walk worthy of the Lord. This is a very common scripture word, but it is very important that we ascertain its precise usage here, or else we may very well go astray. Some poor souls are confounded and downcast by this language. They say, Oh, how can I walk worthy of the Lord when everything that I do is unworthy? In fact, is it not the very confession of the gospel itself that I am an unworthy sinner, that I am a poor, undeserving, unworthy sinner? How can I ever hope to walk worthy of God? And in fact... Taking one step further, this very verse was used, is used, has been used, as far back as Bellarmine, the famous apologist for Roman Catholicism, to defend what is called the merit of works. That is the idea that we can, by doing righteous things, merit God's favor. Because, obviously, if we fulfill the law... Uh, then he owes to us the blessing. So, we have to see then, is it true uh, that this verse uh, contradicts the very gospel itself? Or must we reinterpret the gospel on its basis? Is it true that this verse sets up the altar of human works, overthrowing the gospel as we understand it? Well, I hope you already know what the answer to that is going to be. But we'll go ahead and explain it. It is absolutely true that this word, worthy, can and does carry the modern meaning of worthy in the meritorious sense when it is used in the scriptures. Uh, Just uh, one example, which is repeated several times. The workman is worthy of his hire. He is deserving of his hire. It is owed to him. On account of his work. And if a, if a man comes and works and his pay is withheld, then the one who withhelds the pay is guilty of theft and fraud. The workman is worthy of his hire, deserving of his hire. This is a very common scriptural usage. So I suppose someone could come along and say, well, doesn't it mean here that uh, that we should walk deserving of God? Well, Although it is a common scriptural usage, it is certainly not the exclusive scriptural usage, and in fact, the Greek word itself is much broader in application and meaning. It means not only deserving or worthy, it can also be translated, and is often translated, comparable with, or appropriate to, or becoming of. And that is the idea here. In fact, let me give you a couple of other instances where it is uh, translated in a much preferable fashion uh, by the uh, uh, writers of the Authorized Version. Uh, For example, Romans chapter 16, verse 2. I commend unto you, Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at St. that you receive her in the Lord as becometh saints. And that you assist her in whatsoever business she has need of. See, that he, he 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 commands them that they receive her in the Lord in a way becoming to saints, in a way appropriate to saints. Also, uh, Philippians chapter one verse twenty-seven, verse which you may remember, Paul says, "Only let your conversation be as it becometh." The gospel of Christ. Only let your conversation be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one man's, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. It is not that they were to walk worthy of God in the sense of deserving or meriting good treatment from Him. Rather, the Colossians would walk in a way appropriate to a profession of the Lord. They will walk in a way becoming to God and the profession of God rather than walking in a shameful way which brings reproach on the name of God, as it is said of those Jews in the book of Romans, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you because of their hypocrisy, because they were boasting of the law and then breaking it for obvious anybody to see. And so Paul says that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. This is a way of walking which is opposite of that, of walking in a way becoming and appropriate and God-honoring. And the phrase here, worthy of God or becoming of God, is somewhat shorthand, obviously, uh, there are two other similar passages, uh, in addition to the ones we already quoted. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, we, we've already quoted Philippians one twenty-seven. let your conversation be as is becoming to the gospel of Christ. Ephesians 4, one. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy or appropriate to our becoming of the vocation wherewith you are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And also, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, uh, You know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his children, that you would walk worthy of God or becoming of God, who has called you unto his kingdom and glory. To paraphrase the idea then, it is that they should walk in a way becoming and appropriate to their profession of Christian discipleship. They should walk in a way appropriate to their reception of heavenly grace. They should walk in a way appropriate to their allegiance to a holy and un- and righteous God. Now, to walk in a way unbecoming to those things is, first of all, to walk in a way inconsistent with such an allegiance or a profession. For example, to live as a hypocrite, one who, uh, to the view of all men, professes to be one thing and lives as another. That's not appropriate. That's not becoming or adorning of Christ <laughs> and of, of one's profession of Christian discipleship. It's a contradiction of it. Secondly... Uh, one of the ways to walk unbecoming of the gospel is to, wa- is to walk in a way that causes men to have low opinions of that way, of the true way and of Christ and God. That is the guilt of the Jews, that they walked in such a way as that the Gentiles blasphemed God on their account. That is, un- that is a walk that is unbecoming to God and inappropriate to the gospel because it causes people to blaspheme God rather than praise Him. Thirdly, it is to walk in a way that though in itself may be lawful, causes others to stumble into sin. That's very clear from Romans, 1 Corinthians. Uh, For a person to use their liberty in such a way as it causes their brother to be snared into sin and be destroyed, that's not becoming to the gospel. That's not becoming to God, but of course the root of these last two is the first, to walk in a way inconsistent with a uh, or contrary to a profession of Christian discipleship, uh, to a reception of heavenly grace and to allegiance uh, to a holy and righteous God. And by the way, uh, I would have you notice that it is not only possible to live in this way, to live in such a way that is becoming to the gospel, adorning to it, appropriate to one's profession of faith. It is not only possible to live in that way, it is our duty to live in that way. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, Paul makes it clear that he had repeatedly exhorted and comforted and charged, commanded every one of them that they would walk worthy of God. Who's called you unto his kingdom and glory. And also in Ephesians 4-1, he beseeches them to walk in a way becoming to the vocation, to the calling with which they were called. There's another phrase added to this one. It's a very important phrase. They were to walk worthy of God, of the Lord, excuse me, unto all pleasing. And the meaning of this is simply that the kind of walk that is Christ-honoring, that is becoming to the gospel, is also pleasing to the Lord. It is unto pleasing. It has as its result that God is pleased. And to continue the uh, uh, pattern set up in the previous verses, it is unto all pleasing. Remember, it was a filling to capacity, with an exhaustive knowledge of the divine will that was held with all wisdom well such a filled exhaustive comprehensive uh, knowledge and wisdom will obviously beget a walk that is all pleasing a similar passage is the one in uh, first Thessalonians 4 verses 1 and 2 which Uh, dovetails with this one quite nicely. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus, so that when God looks upon his people who profess His name in the world, and He sees that they live in such a way as is appropriate to their profession of His name, that is becoming to His name, that is adorning of His gospel, He takes great delight in it. It meets with His approval. He finds pleasure in it. To summarize then, Paul and Timothy pray that the Colossians would be filled by the Spirit of God with an exhaustive and inward knowledge of the divine will, having both a perception of and a comprehension of the revelation of God, and an understanding of the practical application of those truths, and that is not as an end in itself, but the end of that comprehensive knowledge is that by doing so, by having that knowledge, they might walk and live in a way that is becoming to their profession of the gospel and honoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is considered as especially important because of the fact that such a walk pleases God. And that consideration ought to possess our minds in everything. Now we have... Uh, five applications or observations to make on this text. First of all, this verse teaches us that the overarching, predominant concern of our lives must be and ought to be how we may please the Lord. The scriptures over and over set forth a contrast, a fundamental contrast, pleasing the flesh, versus pleasing God. Living for ourselves versus living for Christ. Seeking the approval and the acclaim of the men of the world versus seeking the approval of God. There are many who know this or who are aware of this contrast and who flatter themselves that they are doing the right thing, but it is not so simple as that. It requires a close and serious examination of one's actions and motives and purposes. This gate is very narrow, and it is easy to miss. And also we ought to learn that this ought to be a primary concern in our prayers for and our dealings with our brethren, because that's (coughs) the very context of the passage. Paul is praying, in essence, that they might, the Colossians might, please God in their lives. And I wonder if that is our prayer, our principal prayer and concern for our brethren, that they might please God in their lives. I wonder if that is the aim and end of all of our dealings with one another, encouraging and admonishing and instructing one another in it, that we might all live in a way that pleases God. Because that gives God glory. And that is the end of all things. Secondly, this verse also teaches us that what pleases the Lord is when we walk and live in a way that is appropriate to our profession of faith. It is not simply enough to say, I am pleasing the Lord because I am a Christian, because I have peace of conscience in what I do. Only that pleases the Lord, which adorns the gospel with holiness we noted earlier and i will note again that the very worst transgression of this is the hypocrisy that boasts of the law of god and then breaks it in public view this causes the name of christ to stink in the nostrils of men and teaches them to despise all religion countless countless souls have been lost on account of this sin Uh, How many people grow absolutely hardened in their opposition to any and all religion on account of the lives, the wicked, evil lives of those who profess to be Christians and people of the book. When any simpleton can open the book and see that their lives contradict its most basic teachings... And how many parents have ruined their children this way it is impossible to number. How frequent, how often that refrain is heard amongst uh, people who abandon themselves to wickedness. That their parents were religious but evil and mean and wicked. And so they have no use for that religion because it is obviously impotent and worthless and so rather than shedding their parents uh, evil and becoming consistent in their religion they will simply shed their parents hypocrisy and become consistent in their adherence to wickedness but even sincere Christians can violate this precept uh, when they fail to live up to the implications of the gospel A most notorious example, of course, is in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. When Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If you being a Jew live after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? And so forth. Peter himself and Barnabas and, and, and many of the other Jews carried away in something, in a walk that was not upright according to the truth of the gospel. And if Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a recipient of direct divine revelation through whom inspired books of scripture were written, one who spent uh, several years of his life under the direct tutelage of Christ, if Peter was susceptible to such a sin, how much more do we need to take care? How much more do we need to have a fear That we be not carried away by the fear of man into a walk that is not upright according to the truth of the gospel. Now next week we'll consider some of the positive examples of walking in a way becoming to the gospel. But for now we want to rest with this general idea. The walk which pleases the Lord is one which is becoming to and adorning of and consistent with the gospel that we own and the Christ that we serve. The third lesson from these verses is simple, but it is often ignored. Doing right starts with knowing right. This verse offers a combination knockout punch to two unscriptural opinions. This is the first blow, and it leaves flat on the canvas what we might call the anti-doctrinal opinion. We have heard this many times... I don't like doctrine. I'm not interested in doctrinal sermons. What I want is practical sermons. Sermons about how to raise children. Sermons about whether or not competitive sports are okay. And all sorts of things like that. Others want experience instead of doctrine. Doctrine divides, they say. Doctrine is the letter, not the spirit. We want preaching about Christian experience, about the baptism in the spirit, about speaking in tongues, or about the experimental process of conversion. Now, while any of those things may be a perfectly appropriate subject to examine in the light of the scriptures... This is a false view. And Paul knocks it flat right here with a simple prayer. In order that they might live right, Paul prays that they might have a wise, spiritual, comprehensive understanding and knowledge of God's revelation. You must first know truth. It all begins with the knowledge of God, those who stigmatize, who avoid, who have no use for doctrine, who cannot bear to hardly sit still for an edifying doctrinal sermon, those people are cutting off the only pathway to the practice or experience which interests them. I cannot emphasize enough how aberrant and misleading this opinion is. In fact, it will, if allowed to develop to fruition, it will overturn all true religion. It is the only hedge against heresy. It is the only hedge against false experience. It is the only hedge against unbiblical practice. But more than that, it is the foundation, it is the root out of which the tree of holiness grows to fruit-bearing. No more, no sooner, will you have a holy, truly, roundedly holy, living group of people who despise doctrine or or have no use for it or want to get away from it or can hardly sit still for it then you will have a beautiful, fruiting tree that has no root. It will never happen. It will be aberrant holiness, heretical holiness, unbiblical experience, Phariseeism as well. But, lest we be taken in a wrong way, we should move to the other opinion, which this verse delivers a knockout punch to, and that is the antinomian opinion. Because this verse not only teaches that doing right starts with knowing right, it also teaches that knowing right is for the purpose of doing right. There is no room in the apostles' scheme of doctrine for a purely speculative theology. There is no, there is no room here for theology, for the knowledge of God independent of holy living. The man who achieves supposed great learning in theology who yet lives in an evil way, in the words of the apostle, knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But this is unfortunately a prevailing condition in our day. The evangelical churches are filled with doctors of theology whose homes are a wreck, whose marriages a disaster, whose personal piety frequently altogether absent, in fact, this perverted view has been elevated to the status of a principle among many, so that any assertion of a necessary connection between knowing the truth and living the truth is considered to be some sort of bizarre legalistic Phariseeism, some sort of adherence to works salvation. We can thank uh, our dispensational friends for, that, for much of that. But every page of the scriptures rings forth the vital necessity of personal holiness and obedience to the Lord. And to remove that truth, we would have to go after the scriptures with a more aggressive pair of scissors than Mr. Jefferson used to remove the supernatural from the life of Christ. The end of knowledge, the purpose of knowledge, is holiness the right use of knowing the truth is being conformed to God's holiness in heart and life. So two opposite evil opinions, the antinomian and the anti-doctrinal, both thoroughly demolished by the simple prayer of the apostle. And finally, uh, for our fifth point, I want to observe in relationship to those false teachers whom he was opposing, would you notice that Paul does not hold back here in expressing the importance of gnosis, epigenosis, and synesis, of knowledge, exhaustive knowledge, and wisdom and understanding? (coughs) Indeed, he preempts these teachers by affirming the vital necessity of gnosis, epigenosis, and synesis, and praying for them with fullness, and with exhaustive comprehension. But he joins them firmly with gospel holiness, the specifics of which he will shortly express in uh, the rest of verse 10 and 11 and 12, and a comprehensive gospel holiness. And he makes the end of epigenosis and gnosis and synesis of knowledge and wisdom and understanding to be not personal enlightenment, or mystical transformation, or asceticism, or worship of angels, but the pleasing of the Lord Jesus Christ by a holy walk that is becoming to the profession of the gospel. And may we all follow in that way. Amen.